All right, guys, it's time for the next level guy show. A men's interview, interest, and improvement focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. Today's guest is Mark Beaumont. Mark is an athlete, broadcaster and ambassador. He's best known for cycling around the globe in under 80 days, but there's so much more to the man than that. Using a decade of world first, he redefines the meaning of endurance and what we're capable of. He uses these inspiring stories to help businesses and people perform better. Mark's documentaries, events and books about ultra endurance and adventure have taken audiences to over a hundred countries and seen by millions. Outside of sport and broadcasting, Mark is a father, business ambassador, as well as a speaker. He's worked with a number of charities and educational organisations as well. And in this interview, we discuss his story about him being the guy who cycled around the world, the preparation and determination that took, what it taught him about what we can achieve in life, how you can prepare for your own challenge, how to build self-resilience and belief in yourself, and how you too can achieve your dreams by just getting going. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Mark. I really appreciate it. Now, for people who are maybe not familiar with your name, could you just give a quick intro? Because you've done some amazing things. But how would you describe who you are and why you're so well-known? Um, well, I mean, I, I think regardless of what I, what I do with the rest of my life, I'll be known as that guy that cycles around the world a couple of times. Um, and you know what? There's worse things to be known for. Um, I've spent the last 15 years doing professional expeditions. I'm definitely known for trying to do firsts and fastest. So I'm a, I'm an adventure athlete in a hurry. And um, I'm often criticized for spoiling a good, good journey by going <laughs> too damn fast. But, um, but, you know, there's always the kid inside me that's just wanted to really figure out what I'm capable of whilst having that sort of hunger to that wanderlust to explore the world. So, yeah, in the last 15 years um, since I graduated from Glasgow University, I've got a perfectly useful economics and politics degree. Um, I've travelled to over 130 countries, made films with the BBC, CNN, GCN, lots of other networks, and written four books. I do a huge amount of... Uh, events and conferences and the other side of my life I always joke I spend half my life in a suit half my life in lycra um, I'm, I'm a partner in an early stage investment fund I've got a keen in, uh, keen interest in entrepreneurship and um, you know um, the lesser known side of what I do is sort of trying to nurture talent put teams together and and build build businesses and there's more commonality for me than you might expect because it's all about building teams and building performance but um, people only really know me for riding a bicycle mm. I mean that was what was really interesting was when I did research for you there was a lot of 
you know, you immediately assume people are just going to talk about like how many punctures did you have and stuff like that. But I was really impressed at the way that you look, you talked about the performance. You looked at like the definition of success of the true motivation and the inspiration. And you talked a lot about the broadcasting side of it as much as like what the cycling was a metaphor to you kind of thing. I mean, you were you grew up in Scotland like I do, and you were raised on a farm and you were homeschooled. Do you think the that side of you created that wanderlust, that want to kind of get out and see the world, and it, you know, coming from Scotland, the resilience of it as well, kind of made you want to go out and view the world. I think, um, I think the homeschooling part, the fact that I didn't really socialise until I was twelve. You know, I went from the foothills of the Highlands in rural Perthshire on a little goat farm, you know, doing subjects around the kitchen table with my two sisters to a school that was 30 miles away with 1200 kids, you know, at the age of 12. So that's a huge readjustment and, Mm. you know, pretty tough for any kid if you've, you know, just lived on the farm. So I guess what I already had by that point was a great sense of independence. I didn't mind being on my own. I'm not an introverted person. I'm not particularly, I don't crave that solitude, but I'm also, you know, those formative years, I was very happy in my own head, my own space. So, um, yeah, that I've I've always sort of felt that my advantage is not, you know, thinking I'm the world's best bike rider or, you know, athlete. It's having the quiet confidence to take on these projects that other people haven't thought of or trying to do them in different ways. So. I think the formative stuff for me was just having the um, having the freedom of mind and the backing of my mum in particular to just take stuff on. There was no there was no reference point around me for what the norm was. Like I wasn't in a playground environment where people went, "This is cool, that's not. Do this, don't do that." Mm-hmm. And I, I was never like when you're four, five, six, and you're told that you know those cool, those shoes are cool and those ones aren't that sort of starts to ingrain a conformality, like a, a a sense of I need to fit in. Whereas, you know, I'm not a rebel, but equally I've never really bothered about any of that because by the time I was in high school, if I had an idea, I just did it. And you, do you know what? That trait takes you a long way. So yes, to go back to your question, of course I've had wanderlust from an early age. Of course, growing up in Scotland, what an extraordinary adventure playground to then go off and, you know, explore the planet, but, 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 but really it came from that quiet confidence just to go, do you know what? I've got an idea. And then, you know, I was a kid when I started. So I was 12 when I pedaled across Scotland, 15 when I cycled Lond- Land's End, John O'Groats. By the time I was 18, I was crisscrossing Europe. So, you know, I never grew up going, I'm going to cycle around the world once, let alone twice. But looking back at the age of 37, there's a very clear chronology like in terms of confidence and skill set, one project quite clearly leads to the next. Um, but you can only see your life like that in retrospect. You can't see it, you know, as a 12 year old kid going, what do I want to be when I grow up? You just have to build that, you know, yes, keep that kid inside, always keep that sort of that entrepreneurial spark, that sort of, oh, what's possible? You know, that trying to figure out your personal best has always been you know, you, you never, I've got two children of my own now, and you, you really try and nurture that imagination and make it more than just thoughts, you know, just do it. If you've got an idea, do it. You might fail, you might hurt yourself, but you'll learn from it. And, um, you know, that is such an advantage. Because that's something I was really impressed with when I was listening to other sort of media with you, was that 
you don't just sat there, sit there and say, this is what I did on a daily basis. This is what I trained. You kind of looked at like how the point it's possible, what you could achieve and you, you know, how the definition of success and how you could then create that goal. I mean, I really like the way that you set your goal setting, for example, as you looked at what you could possibly do, not what needed to be done, but you, you know, the, the outer sort of limits that you could push yourself through. And very few people do that. And, I think I like that idea of like not having that knowledge of, you know, not being able to conform because you hadn't had that restrictions of a lot of the BS story that we get put on us at that age. Do you think everybody listening needs to do a challenge like this? Like I was speaking to Jay Morton earlier. Do you think everybody should climb their own Everest or cycle around the world? Is that what a lot of people are missing in their life? It's a challenge that kind of really pushes them outside that comfort zone, do you think? I definitely think that experiences in the outdoors are massively formative. You know, the way you are physiologically in the great outdoors, you know, how your senses take in the world, you know, the sights, the sounds, the the, the wind in your hair. You know, the, I am no scientist. I'm not an academic in that sense. But, you know, I can tell you over the years, committing to experiences outdoors can be hard because of all the the hardship and prep and you know time and thought to actually commit to something which can be quite difficult but I've never ever ever regretted an experience in the outdoors yeah I've had some real shockers but ultimately you know the most life defining career defining stuff happens when you're when you're out there so you know I think what stop you know we're creatures of habit at the end of the day your question is do we need to have those uh, experiences there's very few other things in life that uh, give us a sense of um, assurance, you know, our limits, uh, you know, just self-awareness, living life with one eye in the mirror, knowing what you're capable of and how to how to um, how to deal with different situations than endurance sport uh, and and time spent in the great outdoors now look there's a huge amount learned from you know playing rugby hockey and team sports football whatever whatever your game is absolutely um but there's something about feats of endurance now the wonderful thing about endurance is it's the great leveler isn't it young old male female there's not such a great difference you know it's not like you know sprint sports or power sports where you know, you can be born with an ability. The endurance and adventure is a wonderfully broad church. And you do find that people who have had big expedition endurance experience have a um, a different sense of self, you know, perhaps, you know, a bit more, a bit more composure when they come back into other work or family environments. And, you know, it's humbling, you know, when you take on these big projects, you you put yourself into context in the in the big wide world, and uh, I'm sure other people would argue that you can get those experiences through art or music or academia, but um, I'm yet to be convinced that you can get from anything else what you can get from adventure experiences in the wild. Yeah, because I think it's also like we seem to sort of miss that ritual nowadays you know like because life modern society is very sort of easy on us you know we no longer have the the ritual from childhood to manhood and i think sometimes we we could get through life without really challenging ourselves 
And I don't know, is it maybe just a Scottish thing? Because we always grew up, like, you know, doing the lambing and chasing sheep and going up hills and stuff like that. And it was like, you knew, you achieved something from it. Or, you know, you went out and fed the sheep or whatever kind of thing. There was always some sort of challenge and pushing herself each day in the, you know, in the wind and the rain and stuff like that. And I think a lot of people miss that because you can order food nowadays, you can order taxis, you can order dates online almost, you know, like these apps and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's like you're saying, it's we don't have to endure anymore. And I think that's a big part missing about guys. Do you find that's where a lot of guys go wrong? I mean, do you find that that has really helped shape how you view the world? Or did you see similarities in, like, as you visited the different cultures? Yeah, I mean, I guess there is a commonality there. I'm just reflecting on the early part of that question. I mean, I think all people crave the the easy life you know we're all at our heart of hearts quite lazy we'd much prefer to you know watch telly and lie in bed if we didn't have those positive experiences we wouldn't be drawn to you know push ourselves you know through things which are a lot harder than doing nothing so like it's not like I'm some naturally super motivated person you know like anyone you know I love a beer and and a lion so um what is the draw? What is the hook? You know, it's habit, you know, it's, it's, it's knowing that wonderful feedback loop from putting yourself in difficult places. But I mean, you know, at the start of your question, you were, you were, you're reflecting the part that, you know, we're living longer, you know, we're living healthier. And so far as, you know, the healthcare system looks after us and, you know, allows us to avoid a lot of things that really make us suffer. A lot of us go through till midlife without experiencing anyone in our families passing away. So there's no sense of our own mortality um, for many people. It didn't happen really for me until I, you know, sadly witnessed people dying on expedition. And, you know, of course, like you, I grew up on a farm and I've got that sense of life and death. And, you know, people are so far removed from where their food has come from and so far removed from anything, which is, you know, vaguely uncomfortable. Do you go looking for it? No, I don't take on expeditions because I'm some alpha male who just wants to, you know, get back to being Tarzan. Um, but, um, but the reality is, you know, we're fickle creatures. I spend half my life on expedition wishing I was at home with home food and home comforts. And then I spend half my life at home just craving the simplicity and the, and the hardship of, you know, my, my bivvy bag in the open road. So, you know, we're complicated creatures. Uh, the second part of your question, the have I seen that the world over? Yeah, for sure. You know, we're all biased to home. You know, as Scots like to think we're the most welcoming, wonderful place on the planet. I've, you know, a couple of years back, I went and filmed around the entire Commonwealth. And guess what? That's just home. It's what everyone says about home. And regardless of what other people think of it, that familiarity bias with our own is unbelievably powerful starting with family community you know our own country you know and then and then the, the wider world so i think as human beings we crave uh we, we we think we want a simple easy life and we sort of think of a place where we've sort of made it whether that's financially or you know our, our relationships or you know we think there's a, a never ever land where we're going to we're going to turn around and go oh all that work was worthwhile and we've made it. And the reality, which is, you know, a harsh reality is you've never, you've never ever. And you, you have to, 
you have to struggle, not in a sort of a heroic, I'm gladiatorial, I'm out there just to, you know, show the world how tough I am way, but through striving, through dreaming, through being on entrepreneurial, through sort of that sort of hunger, you know, we find wonderful satisfaction. We find incredible fulfillment. We find that real sort of fire in our belly through taking on difficult stuff. So, you know, dream for the simple life if you wish, but, you know, I hope you never find it because I think you'll find yourself very bored. I would encourage everyone to, you know, make themselves uncomfortable as a habit, you know, do things which are, which are difficult. Um, and that's not a hero statement. It's just, you know, creating a life habit out of doing things which, you know, maybe aren't what your mates are doing, you know, just trying stuff, which just cause it interests you. I remember, I know this sounds daft, but I was in, I was doing an internship over in Boston when I was um, in my early twenties. I was incredibly lucky to be selected to go across and spend a couple of months over there. I was in halls of residence and I was living with a bunch of mates from Glasgow. And um, one day I saw an advert that they had this thing called Shakespeare in the Common, uh, Boston Common. And I thought, I don't know, I know nothing, nothing about Shakespeare. I'm not a learned reader and of, you know, plays and the rest of it. But I thought, oh, that sounds cool. Sitting out in the sun, watching a bit of Shakespeare, drinking a beer. I thought, oh, that sounds cool. And, you know, I went back into the into the common room of the halls we were all staying in. You imagine, I'm 21 years old. And I said to everyone that they were about to go out and play football, I said, um, I saw an advert. I saw a poster for Shakespeare in the Park. Does anyone want to go? And you can just imagine one of the alpha males, one of the stronger characters in the group just laughed and went, you want to go and see Shakespeare, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they ribbed me mercilessly. And, you know, so everyone else immediately went, oh, you know, Mark, what a joke. And I was like, fine. I mean, water off a duck's back because that's been an early habit from my formative years and I went fine bought myself a beer and went off and enjoyed an afternoon watching Shakespeare and I knew nothing about it and I don't tell you that as some great hero I cycled around the world story it's just like at some level not giving a shit like if you want to do something do it and if the world tells you it's not the cool thing to do or it's not the right thing to do you know what have you got to lose and you know it's fascinating a few days later a couple of those mates coming back to me and going well that sounded really cool. I kind of wanted to do that, but obviously because, you know, because you were getting laughed at at the time, we, um, you know, we we just went along with the crowd, and then it's a daft anecdote, but that's at the heart of your decisions in life. That's at the heart of just just being in the driving seat, not just going through life sort of trying to fit in and not be noticed. You know, people are so worried about tall poppy syndrome. I don't do these things because you know, you know, I have a look at my social media feeds. I am not a selfie person. I'm not running around going, here I am doing this, here I am doing that. I'm a storyteller. I love going out there, pushing myself and telling stories because it's a wonderful feedback loop. Hopefully it gives other people the quiet confidence to do things they want to do. They're normally good at riding their bikes or climbing mountains or rowing boats or doing the things they want to do. But it's actually having the gumption to take these projects on. That's a totally different life skill than being physically strong. Yeah, I mean, that really hit home with me when, it, when it, as you were saying it was, that's kind of the reason I started the podcast and wanting to speak to people like yourself, you know, like these top performers, people who have gone off and challenged the norm and really sort of pushed themselves and chased the greatness that you can achieve in life. Because for me, it was very kind of go to the pub, sit with your mates. I wasn't, inv- I didn't really like the conversations. I didn't feel like it's been challenged. I knew there was more to life. And I, this is what I really hope for this, like these kind of podcasts is that people kind of get inspired and go, well, all right, you know, and then they pick up the tools and the life hacks that they can then go and implement them and 
take on their own challenge or their own round the world, whatever it could be. Now, you've talked about setting your goals for each day, which is crazy when I think about it. It's 240 miles, I think you cycled across Scotland, and you needed to do that for like 16 days straight. How did you work out what was you were truly capable of, not just so what you had to do to break the record? How did you set the goals of what you as a, as a person could achieve, you know, like and really push yourself? Yeah, so so I mean the the very quick recap of of what the what the round the world was. I mean the round the world is an eighteen thousand mile race. So a race just like the round the world sailing race is a race, you know. In so far as there's nobody else out there, you know. I grew up when I was a teenager watching Ellen MacArthur sail around the world. Was utterly inspired by that. So it's not like there's lots of other people racing you at the same time, but you know it's certainly something that lots of people go for over the year. Um. So when I first spotted this back in the day. When was that? 2005, 2006. The record stood at 276 days to get around the world. And, um, you know, I looked at that and I thought, you know, not not being unkind about what had gone before, but like, why is that not being done properly? Like that, that, that should be at a whole new level. Not because I thought it was, you know, the best bike rider, just because I thought, well, do the maths, you know, simply do the maths, you know. I thought first time around, if I could ride a century a day, 100 miles a day, then, you know, you'd get around the planet in half a year, 180 days, 190, uh, yeah, 180 days, 180 days. And then I was adding a day off per fortnight. That's right. I'm trying to think back to what I did 15 years ago. Um, So that was a very crude sum, ride a century a day, which for a lot of like club riders, 100 miles is, yeah, it's a decent ride, but it's not, it's not nuts. Certainly not if you take all day about it. So when I was 22, 23, and I set out around the world the first time, that was it. Can I ride 100 miles a day? So I came back and broke the previous world record by a matter of months because I came back in 194 days and the record was 276. And that blew people's mind, you know, not just breaking a record by a couple of days, but months. The BBC documentary that followed launched my career. And then I went on and spent the next 10, you know, plus years doing lots of other expeditions. So when I came back to it, you know, I've got all that experience. I've now got a professional team around me. I'm going fully supported rather than unsupported. And um, I, you know, I really put some science behind the ambition. You know, that's when we looked at what's the minimum sleep I can get away with. What's the optimal time spend on the bike? What's the longest sets I can ride? So the inputs to a ride are sleep, ride time, food and hydration. Those are four inputs. So rather than just looking at the world record that stood, which was now 123 days, and going, well, how do I be that? It was proper bottom-up planning. Like, what are my inputs every day that are sustainable that will stack up to, you know, my personal best? So with due respect to Andrew Nicholson and the record that went before, I was never trying to break that record. I was trying to figure out what the art of the possible was. And it was a totally different record as well, because I had a, you know, had a big support team this time. You know, um, it was like Tour de France style riding, but doing much bigger distances and for two and a half months. Um, you know, I had chef, performance manager, logistics manager, you know, media crew. I mean, it was a big budget, you know, fully professional expedition. So when we got down in the planning to about 88, 89 days, I then put it back to my sort of researchers and logistics team. And I said, hang on a second. Are you saying you think we can go sub 90? How about 80? So when I um, 
when we got in the planning, that proper bottom-up planning down to um, less than 90 days, you know, I sort of, the romantic notion around the world in 80 days, the 1873 fiction book, can you, is that possible? So I sort of put it back to them as a hypothesis. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if around the world in 80 days didn't exist as a concept, I would have never thought to have taken that on. If it didn't exist, that you know, I would have quite happily settled at the planning that my team had done and got me down to, you know, 88, 89 days. But because I then sort of gave it back to them as that, that sort of that dream, we then worked out how to to do that. So it was that two stage approach of what do we think is practically possible and then trying to stretch that. And it's interesting to reflect because, you know, I was out my scratcher at half past three every morning on the bike at four, riding four times four hour sets, getting five hours a night sleep, back up at half three on the bike at four every single day for two and a half months. So you've got to do 75 days riding, three days flights, two days contingency to get around the entire planet in less than 80 days. So that is a unbelievably tight race insofar as you've got 12 hours of contingency per continent. I mean, you can lose 12 hours at an airport with a delay or a border crossing. You know, 12 hours is nothing when you're talking about going from Paris to Beijing in 28 days on leg one. I mean, you're mm-hmm. going a thousand miles every four days. So if you mess up in any given four hour block, you know, you're, it's going to be pretty hard to make it back over the 80 days. Um, So it was a massive, massive stretch target. We broke the world record by 37%. And people thought we were nuts. You know, when I set out, you know, people were like, well, we love the ambition. Of course, we get the 80 days dream. But, you know, there's just no reference point for this. Nobody in the history of cycling has tried anything close to this. And that brought a lot of negativity, a lot of doubt. And that's when you've got to be pretty keen on your own gremlins. Like, you imagine there's 40 people working for me across this project. And, um, you know, they're amazing. They're brilliant. They're doing stuff that I couldn't possibly do, but they're still looking to me for that sort of emotional leadership. Like if I, if I look worried, they look worried. If I smile, they smile. And I'm acutely aware of that when I get on my bike at four o'clock every morning. And even though you might feel like crap and you've barely slept and you've got another 250 mile ride, miles to ride that day, you've got to somehow show your team that you still believe in the plan and believe in them. And you know, that's that's a lot more than being fit. That's a lot more than just the athletic part. You know, I'm six foot three and 90 kilos. I'm not, you know, I'm not the world's best bike rider. Power to weight ratio, you know, performance on the bike. There's there's a ton of riders out there that could kick my arse. But when it comes to ultra, ultra endurance, that level of belief and discipline around the plan and getting the right people around work around you, that's a much more complicated model than just, you know, a race which lasts a day and you just have to go all guns blazing and you know the, the the fastest guy gets to the finish that consistency that ability to suffer that ability to deal with sleep deprivation and the the pressure of a race that lasts two and a half months yeah there's you've got to have done stuff in your life that prepares you for that you know it's um you can't just fall out of bed and do that you know without without experience because that's definitely something that comes across in the sort of documentaries and that is the how good a support team that you had you know you had like the mechanic the performance manager and things like that but you've said that you picked the team more than just based on their technical ability how did you go about creating that support team and what did it teach you about sort of leadership and building that kind of relationships because you basically stayed in an rv when you're sleeping or cycling with them you relied on them to keep you moving the logistics of your travel etc 
what did you look for in picking your team members? Because you said yourself that you wouldn't be able to have done this without them. But what advice, you know, would you give to people for creating such a great support team? I mean, when you sort of build a structure like that, so a lot of people based athletic plans and business plans on just let's let's beat what we did last year or let's beat what the competition's doing. Let's beat what the competition doing is the classic mistake that almost every athlete in business makes, as opposed to, you know, proper bottom-up planning, what is possible? What's the art of the possible? How do you actually define this on our own terms? And then having the quiet confidence to, to actually stick to that rather than just sort of fall back to, oh, well, as long as we beat the competition, we've won. Um, so that, for me, is the difference between, you know, absolute success and comparative success. You know, absolute success is success in your own terms. And I explain that off the bat because you need a team that can buy into that as well. So, you know, we, we, we won't go into the geeky side of that. But in broad brush strokes, it's very easy to get people who are well qualified. You know, it's very easy to get people who have, um, you know, worked for impressive organizations and, the thing I care most about is behavior and behavioral change under pressure, like really knowing how people think, how they communicate and how they act under pressure. Because that sequence of events under sleep deprivation, financial stress, you know, angst amongst the teams, you know, just uncertainty, how you deal with stress, you know, what, how, how are you in that you turn the heat up? First of all, it sort of clouds the mind, you know, it, it brings in your blinkers, it changes the way you perceive the world it stops you being objective and collaborative then of course it changes the tone and the the manner of your communication that ability to remain open remain pragmatic you know remain collaborative and then lastly your actions you know if you don't get the first two things right if you can't keep an, an, an even emotional keel you know your actions fundamentally change so if i was to think of the people who left the project it was never because they weren't technically good they hadn't been on the courses and knew what to do it was always because of the behavioral change under pressure, that reliability part. And um, it's pretty hard to define without giving you examples. But, you know, when I rode the Atlantic back in 2012, uh, you know, we capsized and nearly died after 28 days of rowing. So we were into Caribbean waters, thought we'd done it, and then went upside down. Um, long story short, but most of the crew never left the safety cell of the life raft. So once we were sort of, you know, capsized, paddled around for an hour trying to sort our stuff out, got into the life raft. And then even though we knew what was needed to be to survive, we were just going to float around until, you know, we perished anyway. Um, we had to do a whole bunch of bunch of stuff, get back in the water, swim, dive, grab our, you know, EPIRB, SAT, flares, emergency kit, go through all the training we'd been through in emergency situations but fundamentally, there was an assumption with over half of the crew that somebody else would do it. It was unspoken. It, would, it, it had never been clear until we were under that degree of pressure. But it was just this, uh, this assumption that, that regardless of physical or mental ability or training, that somebody else would be more able or more willing to do what was necessary. And it, it really taught me the difference between knowing what to do and doing it. So, I mean, you can interview people and they'll tell you amazing stories about the companies they've worked for and the projects they've been involved in. These days, I'm much better at asking, what did you do 
don't tell me you worked for Apple or Nike or you worked at the Olympics or like, wow, that's really impressive. What did you actually do? And, and tell me about some stuff which was, you know, really high pressure and difficult. And if people sort of stutter and slow down and, and, and start to not be able to explain themselves, you know, it's pretty clear that they've not been in those situations where they've had the clarity of thought to be able to do those things. So take the capsize in the Atlantic. If you said to all six of the crew, tell me about a time when the shit hit the fan, they'd tell you an amazing story about capsizing the Atlantic and surviving. And you would you would sort of place on them all sorts of amazing character traits around grit, resolve, resilience, you know, just, you know, you'd employ them on the moment because you think, my God, you've been through something which was so tough and yet you came through it. That doesn't for a moment tell you what they were thinking, what they were communicating and what they actually did. You need to say, you need to say, you know, okay, crikey, capsized in the Atlantic. That must have been incredibly tough. You know, tell me about it. What happened? What was the process? You know, okay, the capsize is awful, but what did you what did you do? Oh, I closed my eyes and prayed for fourteen hours. Ah, right, that's what you did. Because you know, within that story, that thing which immediately impresses you, you need to be very very careful not to impart to people, you know things that you want to hear i'm so acutely aware when i'm speaking to people now of not having that bias for them not sort of assuming things on their behalf not sort of thinking you know of course i want to think the best of people but i used to be a lot more generous i used to be you know somebody would start telling me about who they were and where they'd come we can all think of those first meetings with people and then you try and sort of build around them a, a very positive story and, it, you know, it's not like I'm trying to strip people of anything they're deserving, but I really listen carefully. Like, is that bullshit? Is that a story that you were told? Were you there? Or, you know, and also just through the stories people tell you, just get a real understanding of what are they not saying? Like, what what part did they play? And do they need to tell me that story? Like, is, is there a reason they're telling me that? Or or is or does that show something else about their character or their need to be known or their 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 confidence or lack of? You know, crikey, we're all human, we've all got mental health, we've all got the need to be liked and to and to like others. So, you know, this is a complicated world that we're talking about here. But the thing I think I've become much better at over the years is just really listening to people and understanding what they're saying not necessarily what you know the words are and not necessarily what they're trying to put across because quite often what people are trying to sell you is not is not the real deal you know whether they're over egging the pudding or they're not telling you something that's important so the the bit which i've become really keen at you know whether it's on the businesses that I'm, i help or or the performance teams i put together is just really trying to understand people and 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 then and then you know nurture talent absolutely give people opportunities but never at the cost of the overall project so you know you're allowed to bring on talent promote people take risks give people accountability and responsibility but no deadwood okay so so anything which becomes a break on progress cut it out make changes get rid of people uh, and i'm really really clear on that you know I, i'm it's so easy to just when something derails your life, your project, your work, then you have to react. You know, in, in crisis situations, most of us are actually pretty good because it's that fight or flight. Shit, I have to do something because my livelihood depends on it or my life depends on it. 
Um, so people are surprisingly good under that sort of real stark pressure. Leaders are less good under sort of things which I just call breaks on progress, stuff which is just not quite right. You know, it's the conversations around the water cooler. It's the things which are, you know, the negativity or the, the lack of productivity or lack of accountability, which is just annoying. But ultimately, it's not going to it's not going to ruin everything. It's just not quite optimal. Well, those little things over long periods become very big things. You know, take my, you know, idea of if you mess around every five minutes when you get off the bike, going around the planet, that led a day to the world record. So take that same analogy and, and, you know, put it to people in your team. You know, if people are all pointing in the right direction, you know, bought into the same plan, yeah, they can make mistakes and they can have their own ideas and they've got that independence. But but ultimately, if there's even small things which are not right in terms of what the team are trying to do, you know, if people make mistakes, fine. You know, bring them back, learn from it. That's part of life. But if people are ultimately not bought into what you're trying to do and continue to be a break on progress, cut them out. And I've seen that mistake made so many times over the years where people just, they're too nice. They they, they adapt. They they learn to live around it. Nobody wants to have the difficult conversations. And, you know, that's, that's something you got to learn if you want to be successful. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. I love that because it's usually what they're not saying. You know, it's like everybody's always got a way of them being the hero in the story. And a lot of times you can kind of go, you know, you just push into a wee bit and they they crumble. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we all have this kind of way of, like, retelling stories to make ourselves look better. And is this was that the initial plan was to find these people that would then just let you control the controllables, you know, would just allow you to get on the bike, you knew what you had to do and do it, and they would take care of you know logistics and fixing things and you know cleaning the bike and all that sort of stuff. How how was it sort of set up? You know, did you just focus solely on just getting on the bike each day and riding? And how did you build up the resilience for this? Is it just the same as going and training and getting the miles in so you have these reference points to then, you know, to use so you know what to anticipate, you know what to expect? How do you even start planning and training for something like this? I mean, I'm not taking away from the physical part. You know, to be able to ride an average of 400 kilometers a day, you know, just just shy of so about 240 miles a day, you know, for two and a half months is 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 a huge physical task. Of course it is. But most athletes going into big expeditions over focus on training. So that's all they see. And most expeditions, in my experience over the last 15 years, don't get to the start line because the athlete's not very good at fundraising or not very good at putting the right team together or not good at sort of looking, doing all the logistics and mitigating the challenges, you know, down the road, border crossings, whatever it is. So um, 
yes, physical training is massively important. And that's, you know, and that's a, a podcast conversation in itself, isn't it? You know, in terms of how the hell you train yeah. for, for something of, of uh, like an 18,000 mile race. But the, 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 at the heart of your question is, um, I'd spent a lot of my early years in expedition doing solo unsupported expeditions. So I know we've talked a lot about cycling, but, you know, climbing, um, mountaineering, a lot of skiing trips, um, you know, we've talked, touched on some of the ocean rowing, Arctic stuff. Um, quite a lot of these trips were self-supported, you know, when I cycled nine months down the length of the Americas or even the length of Africa, the Cape Town world record. You know, these are all trips where ultimately it's proper adventure. You know, some of them are borderline sort of ex like explorer territory, especially Arctic. Uh, I would never call cycling around the world explorer territory because you're following a ribbon of tarmac. But my point is that the real adventure is everything that happens off the bike, off the boat. You know, it's the the people, the places, the cultures, the food, where you're going to sleep every night. Where's your next clean water and safe meal? You know, that sense of having to find your way through is what makes it an expedition as opposed to just a feat of sports. Um, so I kind of knew from all that experience that to be able to take it to its nth degree, to the ultimate for me is the world, the circumnavigation. You know, I said before, I wondered why it wasn't as coveted and as professional as the round the world sailing record. And um, so I, I always knew if I was going to come back for one big prize, it was going to be the world. And I thought, if I'm going to do that and literally leave no stone unturned, it's not a world record for how quickly you can pitch your tent. It's a world record for how fast you can ride your bike around the planet. So I had to have everyone else doing everything else. I had to focus on the one core skill set, which the record was about, which is racing my bike. So, you know, you lose a ton of time, you know, stopping in Pakistani restaurants waiting for your lunch to be cooked or, you know, all the faff and faddle that comes with, uh, you know, a proper unsupported expedition. I love that, but you're not going to go that fast. So to to go around the world in 80 days, you need to find an amazing team who can take care of all the other component parts. So Laura Penhall, my performance manager, you know, she's been at four, maybe five Olympics and Paralympics, you know, on the support side. So absolute top of her game in terms of working with athletes and para-athletes. In her own light, she was the first... She led the first all-female crew to row the Pacific Ocean. So she led a nine-month expedition rowing from California to Australia. I mean, properly hardcore. Um, so I needed people of that caliber who could basically take the reins and do a lot more than I could ever do. So Mike Griffiths, my logistics manager, military career, run races with Race Across America for years and years and years had that just discipline around logistics and team management which again you don't want to be worrying about when you're on the bike all you can do when you're riding the bike is ride the road in front of you you can't be sort of thinking about the next border crossing or what's going to happen in two weeks time you need other people in your team to have that level of objectivity so it's difficult for me isn't it because it's my project you know i raised the best part of a million quid to make this happen and then you know, to then hand over the reins and just say, look, I'm just a guy on the bike now. If, you know, if I fail, everyone fails, but I can't do this on my own. And that's so important because if I try and dictate and control this project from the bike, it'll fail. 
So that takes a huge, and actually, so I did a 3,000 mile training ride around the coastline of Britain, London to London via the coast, um, just before I left. And then there was nine weeks recovery between the, the round Britain and the world. And that was meant to sort of test the plan, test the team, make sure we're ready. And then there was sort of a process in place to me hand over the reins in those nine weeks so that by the time we got to Paris, I wasn't in charge. Now, of course, people still looked at me for that sense of reassurance. I, you know, I alluded to it before, that sort of emotional leadership is the one part you'll never delegate. You might try to, but trust me, if it's your idea and you've employed people, you know, if you smile, everyone smiles. Um, it was funny when we got to Alaska, Mike Griffiths turned to me and said, uh, we've got a problem in the team because um, one, of the, one of the crew is um, threatening to go home, he's threatening to leave. I said, why? And he said, oh, because um, because he's he's uh, he's really intimidated. He's not enjoying it. And he's, you know, he's just finding it too, too tough. You know, all the way to Australia and New Zealand, it had been utterly relentless. It had been so hard to stay on schedule through the winter, the southern hemisphere, the dark, the, 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 the it was just brutal. A lot of, a lot had gone wrong. Cleared the length of New Zealand in five days. And um, I turned around to Mike and I said, right, you know, obviously I can't wade in at this point. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've very much delegated these responsibilities and you just undermine the responsibility you try to create if you then get stuck back in and try and call the shots. So I said, like, obviously that's unacceptable, Mike. You know, who's intimidating him? What's going wrong? You know, let's give him the reassurance he needs. And, and Mike quietly turned to me and he said, it's you, Mark. It, you know, it, um, I said, what? what? What do you mean? I'm a nice guy. Like, what, what have I done? And he said, no, you know, you're you're really intense. And I understand that, you know, with my military background and my life experience, Laura and a lot of the team understand it. You know, we can absolutely take it at face value, but one of the guys, he, he, you know, he might look tough, but he doesn't have the same life experience. And, you know, that critical feedback and that daily pressure and that constant drive, he said, you know, he's, he's, he's super intimidated. He's about to get on a plane. And I really had to take, you know, a moment on the bike and thought, bloody hell, what have I done? What have I said? Because there was me trying to not control the project, not make the decisions, not ask anyone to do anything. And yet just through my behavior every day and my intensity, you know, there was somebody, you know, super intimidated and about to leave the project. And I'd, I had no idea that my body language and the things I wasn't saying could have that effect on people. It was, it was really interesting. It is strange how like some people can misinterpret what you say or what you mean or they can read in readings behind things and it's it's true what you say it's like it, we forget that not everybody has that same level experiences ourselves or the person on the phone to our business or whatever it is isn't the same person that we're you know you're not speaking to yourself and that a lot of times they're doing it by their own their own biasism their own yeah upbringing and how they've been affected and i think that's something we do forget with our interpersonal relationships and you know how did you find afterwards when you had done these sort of challenges how then did it sort of change your view of the world and sort of interactions with people you know do you find now that we're quarantined for example that you're getting pretty bored with just sitting in at home do you feel this are longing to want to go off and do something now no no i love it I mean, it's been a really tough, what, what is it, 11, 12 weeks. Um, you oh. know, I spend, I love it insofar as I've got, uh, 
a six-year-old, a four-year-old, you know, my wife. I live in Edinburgh. I've got, um, I've worked very hard for 15 years and it's pretty devastating to watch 80, 90% of the work you've got planned for the year just disappearing. You know, I've had a successful little business for a decade and a half and, you know, through no fault of my own, it's just fallen off a cliff. So that is that is quite scary. But, you know, I'll never regret the time it's given me with my kids. Um, I'm somebody who's typically spends half my life on the road. And it's given me time to create some other projects. And I don't feel sorry for myself because, you know, my goodness, you just need to look around you to see how hard this is hitting a lot of people. And um, I guess the the habit that I'm used to from a very early age is is going, right, let's do this. Let's create an opportunity. Let's pivot. Let's, let's, let's you know go out there, sell, build finance, build teams, you know, it's, it, I've done it my entire life. So it's pretty devastating when, you know, I, I, my bread and butter is events, conferences, working with businesses, you know, jumping on planes and trains and traveling the world, making films. I can't do any of that. And it's not going to come back overnight. So for the next year, year and a half, you know, I've got the opportunity to do other stuff. So do I have that wanderlust to get out there and make more films and travel? Yeah, absolutely. But it's given me the opportunity to do some stuff which, you know, I'll never regret. I, as you can probably tell, I'm a very process-driven person. So I, you know, I, I, I was listening to a podcast, actually the Rich, Rick Roll podcast when he was talking to, Rich Roll, when he was talking to, um, oh, the chap who ran across America and then decided to run every street in San Francisco. And his name has gone straight out of my head. Gareth, Gareth Evans? It might be. And um, something like that, yeah. and um, anyway, every street, San Francisco. I would, I would encourage you to look it up. It's a fantastic little project, and I was inspired by it. You know, I listen to podcasts a lot, and I thought, oh, I could do that in Edinburgh with my daughter. So for the last forty-three days, we've gone out. You know, for an hour every day, which is what you're allowed to do, and um, and you know, she's on her bicycle, age six. I'm running, run a ten. 15k however far it takes me and we've mapped out the whole of edinburgh i think edinburgh is 80 10k runs and by the time she goes back to school after the summer she'll have cycled every cul-de-sac every lane every roundabout of edinburgh and you know as a project father and daughter you know that's that's such a lot of fun you know we look forward to every day she writes a journal about it and you know she's building great skills through doing it I looked around me and I was like, okay, well, business is a bit shit right now, but you know, I want to feel like I've had some connection with the wider challenge which is going on with coronavirus and COVID. So can I create an event? Can I do something which supports those that need it most right now? So I was listening to Sir Tom Hunter chatting to Chris Evans on the radio and he was talking about getting money to where it was needed most. This was about six weeks ago. And uh, I thought, oh, that's, that sounds great. So I can create an event. I just need to talk to somebody like Sir Tom who knows where the money's needed to go. So I got in touch with him. Um, he told me the best way to coordinate any fundraising. Got put, put in contact with a few other people who could help me organize it. Five days later, we ran our first event and over four weeks raised £231,000 um, and built a community of cyclists and rowers across the UK who were doing miles at home and you know, putting in some incredible shifts. We called the event World in a Day and just 
you know, the fundraising is fantastic. But what, what's even more powerful for me is that sense of community, camaraderie, doing something positive at a period when you could so easily just put your head in the sand and wish time away. So, you know, for me, it's about, yeah, there's there's a lot to bemoan right now, but you don't want to just sort of, you don't want to just sort of wish it didn't happen and feel sorry for yourself. You just want to, you just want to sort of do something which makes this this period, you know, positive. And I always think if you start to feel sorry for yourself, just get the arrows pointing the other way. Just, just do something for other people. Talk to other people. Get some perspective. And as I say, doing something meaningful with my daughter, or you know, building a community of fundraisers for a month. You know, that's the best thing I've done in lockdown. You know, the business, they'll be fine. It's not cheery, but if all I'd done in the last ten weeks was worry about work, you know, I'd be—I certainly wouldn't be very happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that—and that's the thing that'll shape her future and make her a better person, and that'll be the thing that she remembers most. You know, yeah. for, like from her childhood, is that kind of interactions. And I think that sometimes is entrepreneurs or men in general. We tend to kind of focus on oh, let's make money, let's get the best car. We, You know, we get into this BS kind of comparison stuff and where we are in our jobs. And, and then sometimes it's it's actually about the stories we're building with people, our interactions, it's, you know, it's the experiences that we have with people. And it took me a long time to realize that, that it was more experiences and what, what happened in it, you know, rather than yeah. what you got out of something. And yeah. it took me getting made redundant and stuff like that. And I think it's, it's a difficult one to explain to a younger guy. But I think it's, as you get older, you kind of realize the importance in giving back. I mean, do you think more now that it's the joy of telling the story, it's the joy of the experience and the broadcasting of it, more than just getting the record and the site clean and that sort of thing? Was that the kind of the appeal of it, that they gave you a camera and allowed you to share your story of it i mean since i was 22 23 it's always been a part of it so i've never i've never been an athlete without being a storyteller now being brutally honest when i first went on that round the world back in 2007 i had no ambition to be on telly or to write books or the rest of it i didn't like writing at school and university and i hadn't grown up with a telly so it just wasn't part of my motivation i did it as an economics graduate it was a purely sort of the utility of the fact that I needed to get sponsors. I needed to thank my sponsors. I spent half a year telling the sponsors that I would get telly and that same half year telling telly companies I'd get it sponsored. So it was a very commercial, you know, decision at the age of 21, 22 going, I need telly because I need to somehow give return on investment to my sponsors. So again, to spoil the romance of it, you know, I went into this just in very practical terms going, what gives me the means to do these things? And then I met an amazing man called David Pete, uh, a great late friend of mine. We lost him about six, seven years ago. And he was a legend in the Scottish filmmaking uh, documentary world. But he took me under his wing for the last sort of six years of his career. We traveled the world together, made films, and he shared with me, with me that real passion for storytelling, for people. You know, he had such a childlike interest and he had such a wonderful way of speaking with people and and finding out stories and the camera gives you wonderful access you know it, it really does more than a tourist would ever get it allows you places and and people are incredibly candid when you know they know it's for some reason going to be filmed and shared so 
it's a real privilege. It's a real responsibility. It's something I absolutely love. And it's not for the ego of it, but I wouldn't go on a journey now if I didn't get to film it. You know, I love that. I, uh, I get a lot from it. So what did you learn during that time, you know, about when like the boat capsized, you know, and you, you realized that sort of people weren't willing to, sw- to try to save themselves or, you know, you got the time you got like puncture after puncture and stuff like that. And then, you know, I mean, you talked about getting, speaking to a therapist after coming back from that rowing trip. You've talked about like the challenges and the resilience and dealing with emergencies, but what what has it taught you about learning to deal with that, you know, and dealing with problems and stuff like that? Has it changed since you've become a father? Has that, you know, do you think it's helped you become a, a better father? Um, I think there's definitely things I wouldn't do now that I did in my 20s, you know, People talk, go around talking about dangers and risks, but I, I always talk about exposure, which simply means how likely are things to go wrong? And if they do go wrong, how serious are the consequences? So, you know, I've got a pretty good way of analysing risk these days, which I think is a useful toolkit to have because it stops you running around being scared of shadows. You know, I'm a pretty practical person. You know, I wouldn't be scared of something just because I've not done it before you know the ability to analyze something at face value and decide it's it's risk profile and your exposure and I think you know that is a useful toolkit um I think the thing that it fundamentally changes for me as a father is the responsibility to impart and share as much experiences with them as I can so by the time they have their own independent bold ideas they've got a toolkit to make up their own minds so i'm certainly not a protective parent i'm certainly not somebody who's who's saying you're not old enough and you know of course there's there's you know there's limits but what i'm saying is i want to get out there and do as much as possible experience the big bad world in all its grit and glory and you know by the time they're 15 16 17 and they're saying i want to do x y and z it might be in sport it might not be it doesn't really matter um they they've got enough self-awareness so at the root of your question is what's it given me i think it's given me you know a better sense of self you know assurance knowing that you can deal with yourself in certain situations my goodness i know i know my insecurities i know my faults i know i'm still that kid who you know was shit at rugby and football because I'd never played it and you know so simply you know wasn't picked so I've still got that natural aversion to head-to-head competition you know if you see me in a pub you know I'm normally the quietest guy and which people cannot believe because I'm also the guy standing on stage in front of you know a a conference of 800 people so there's still a, a homeschooled kid inside me that shies away from if somebody and I'm a marked man. If I turn up at a, you know, an event, you know, all people want to do is race me. But you know, I'm still somebody that assumes I'm going to lose that race because, you know, as an 11, 12, 13 year old kid, you know, I was quote unquote shit at sport. I wasn't shit at sport. It was just the things I was passionate about was horse riding and skiing and cycling my bicycle, not hockey, rugby, football, the things I was meant to be doing at that sport. And so, so. 
I think it's fascinating when you grow up and then have your own kids to reflect on the stuff that A, you become good at, but hopefully more self-aware of. Because, you know, it certainly gives me the ability to do things, you know, with more confidence. But it, I'm also acutely aware of, you know, those formative years and how they shape, you know, how I am in those situations. And ultimately, how I am as a father with my kids. So how do you deal with that kind of mindset at times, you know, that, that negative mindset? Because that's something I've struggled with. Like I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and there's times I've start, I'll start a role with somebody, like the compete, the competition side of it, and I'll be immediately thinking, I'm going to lose this, I'm going to lose this. And it's it's one of those, I don't know, is it maybe like the Scottish negative attitude to things? or But we also have that sort of resilient side of it. You know, how did you learn to overcome listening to that sort of autopilot response and know that yes I can do this because I've got the reference points yes I've got the great team in place that yes I can do this because I've proved it time and time again how do you overcome any sort of like negativity like that that allows you not to let your daughter grow up with that kind of belief as well so I mean you know I'm a huge believer in shoot for the stars dream big you know take on take on take on your big ideas but i'm also a massive fan of you know learn your trade earn your stripes know what it takes so you know the risk is these days you sort of watch things online on social and you think i can fall out of bed and do these things i'm off to climb everest row an ocean cycle around the world you've got to you've got to walk before you run you've got to know yourself before you can do these truly difficult things so you know, I've no idea when you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, if you walk into the ring and you know that person has the experience to beat you, whether that is you're defeated simply by that knowledge and you're accepting that you're going to learn a hell of a lot from this situation, or you're just not backing yourself because, you know, you're, you know, the, the, the internal dialogue until that moment in time, you know, hasn't, hasn't been right. So I think something that endurance athletes get good at is fixating on what they're trying to do you know what's important to you why do you train why do you do Brazilian jiu-jitsu at all what 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 does it give you that's worthwhile doesn't need to be about you know the level you want to get to or 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 what competition you want to win but it has to be about the things that you know mean to you there's something to you in doing that and then endurance athletes get very very good at you know riding the road in front of you so the period of time that exists between now and then can truncate to nothing. You know, they get endurance athletes are very good at sort of not worrying about the middle ground. And why, why I think that's really, really useful is because if you're going into a fight or a sparring situation and you're sort of casting your mind forwards to five, 10 minutes down the line and what the outcome is going to be, you're already entirely distracted from what you're doing in that moment. So your defense, your awareness of your body, you know, the, you know, even the, the feeling when you hit the mat or, or, or take strikes, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really intense experience, but if your mind is fasting forwards to the outcome from a combination of events, which you've got no awareness of yet, then you've already lost, you know, so endurance athletes, I think are very good at honing that. I know why I'm doing this. I know where my, what, where the anchor is further down the road, but, but, but all I'm focusing on is the now. And the more that you can control your mind in terms of the what ifs and, you know, the period of time that between happens between now and then, the, the, the more that you enjoy the moment and the more that you control the moment, that a lack of control normally becomes 
from our, our foresight and our foresight getting in the way of our focus. And, and that's it for me. And if, if you can train that, it doesn't matter. If, if, you, if you end up losing, you'll still have learned more from that process because you've been properly in the moment. I love that kind of outlook. I mean, do you find that's with the businesses that you work with that they focus on the wrong things? Is this does the sort of the skill set that you've learned during these sort of challenges does that help you sort of analyze businesses better? Do you think because you can see where they're focusing on the wrong kind of thing? They they're setting up their team wrong. That their processes are wrong. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, I, I, does I, it help you? I, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, most businesses, the classic business, the chief exec sets the strategy for the year, tells the tells the business what he wants to do, which is normally a financial output, and then tells the team that that's really important and cracks the whip. And those numbers stay on the wall as outputs, which doesn't mean anything to anyone. And so very few leadership teams define success, KPIs, by inputs, behaviors, and what you actually expect people to do every day. That consistency pays off. So that, that sort of you know, mission statement of a project, be it cycling around the world or growing a business over a thousand days or, you know, becoming the best you can at, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, that sort of mission statement is great because that's the that's the strategy, that's the big picture stuff. Then you've got the bottom-up planning around what does that actually look like? Those are inputs, behaviors, day-to-day things which people can actually think about. You know, if, especially if I had a team of 40 and I was talking to my mechanic and I said to him, 80 days, 80 days, 80 days. 80 days doesn't mean anything to him. Alex, one of my mechanics, turned to me when I was riding out the Gobi Desert into uh, from Mongolia to China and said to me on like day 25, he said, Mark, we're going to do this. And I sort of laughed and I said, Alex, at what point did you not think we were going to do this? But, you know, there's, there's a real truth within that. Whereas if I'd just been banging on all the time about the 80 days rather than what I, you know what we actually expected the team to do, then we wouldn't have got the 80 days. So most businesses do exactly the same thing. They tell you what, what's important in terms of an output without actually defining what they expect people to do in very simple terms. And you've talked about the the times that you've pushed your team into the red during these sort of challenges. Could you just quickly explain about that? You know, like what, what does that mean and how do we push ourselves into the red to achieve our goals when it's needed? And when do we know to back away or to, you know, to push it or when's a suitable time to do it? What did it sort of teach you about really stepping up in those kind of moments? So the only way, so so again, going back to the business analogy, a lot of people just ask for more and more and more and more and more. Just, you know, work harder, create more, be more productive, be more profitable. It's the same in sport. Just like keep beating your personal best or beating other people, you know, if you've done bottom-up planning properly, if you've actually figured out what should be possible with the resources you've got and the team you've got, then you know what steady state looks like. So, um, you know, these projects that, you know, I've done four expeditions that last over half a year. It's not about smashing it out of the park in any given day. It's about what does consistent performance look like over a long period of time. When you get that right, then you can tweak the plan. You can you can say, right, for the next sort of six days, we're going to have to go into the red. We're going to have to, it's going to be unsustainable. And we know it is because we know what steady state looks like. Um, but it's worth it because of X. And, you know, we did that often with the around the world in 80 days going, if we make that flight, 
that's going to pay dividends because if we miss that flight, the next one's 12 hours later and we're going to be half a day down on schedule or whatever it is. But if we get the earlier flight, we're suddenly, you know, three quarters of a day up on schedule. So quite often the make or break on those transit points were huge. So I'd say, look, last six days in Australia, this is not sustainable. Team, we need you to do more. We're going to ride more, sleep less. But it's for a fixed period of time for a, for a given purpose. And then we're going to go back to steady state. So as long as you set people's, um, you know, give people clarity around what you're asking them to do and why, then you're not just sort of sitting there going, we want more and more and more and more and people get burnout and fatigue. You're allowed to set real intensity in your team as long as people know why and as long as they know what steady state looks like. Now, if you set steady state as something which is really difficult, that's fine because at least you set their expectations. It's that lack of clarity and communication which messes with people. It's, you know, it's why brilliant people just get burnout because they don't feel like they've got any control. Well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because you find in businesses, for example, it's if you do well, they expect more and more. They just keep wanting to go, oh, well, if he can achieve that, what else can he do? And a lot of times that's all team leaders do is they've got targets that are set by somebody. So then they push their guys and their guys push like for other things. And it ends up like you're saying, you just burn out. And I think that's what a lot of teams struggle with is having somebody that knows when to push, but also when to back away. Um, I mean, what out of everything that you've done, cause I know, I know we're over our time already and I feel like we're just touching the surface on how much I'm, I'm intrigued in the, cause I, I actually fell in love with your story and there's so many avenues I wanted to take this, but before I'd love to have you on again for a round two, but what are you most proud of? What, you know, when you look at it all, is it the camaraderie with your team? Is it cycling around the world? Is it being a father? What, if you had to, like, what would you want your legacy to be? It's a big question. Um, crikey. I mean, I'm only 37, so um, ask me in a few years' time. Um, it's not answering the question, but, you know, if somebody offered me, you know, 50 million quid, would I change what I've done in the last 15 years? And the answer is no. So... I've made mistakes. I've failed at a number of expeditions. You know, I've I've had things which are regrettable. But you know, I'm not somebody who actually you know re regrets anything. You know, it's 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 all been it's all been pretty tough, interesting. But you know, I've made a lot of friends and I've made very few enemies. So um, you know, on balance, you know, I'm happy. You know, I'm. Uh, what do I want my legacy to be? You know family's at the heart of everything I, I sort of split life into three three spheres work community and family and it's so easy to get focused on one or two of them without without actually creating an impact on all three but for every period of my life and so, you know during lockdown is a great example take the last 12 weeks as an example you know as long as you've touched each of those three spheres in a in a purposeful way you've had a plan how am I going to make a difference in my work, in my family, and in my community? You know, that'll, that'll give you a sense of sort of happiness, you know, mental sanity. I, I do, do I care? I mean, you, you asked what, what, what I want my legacy to be. I mean, that's about what other people think of me. Mm. Maybe, maybe we're finishing this conversation where we started. Maybe I should care more about what other people think 
but uh, you know maybe it's that homeschool boy surrounded by goats and sheep and, and chickens and hens i um i maybe i, so I probably I've, would I've, stop you being you i've maybe i've maybe i've maybe never spent i've no, never spent a mass amount of time worrying about what other people think <laughs> And I think that's what makes you such such a remarkable guy and like such a likable guy is that because you don't. And I always like because I started asking that question because I found it difficult to kind of explain to myself what I want my legacy to be. I just wanted to be live happy and have some great experiences and you know be like have kids and stuff like that. You know, I found it difficult to kind of answer. So I was always interested to see what other people thought. And it's like you're saying, it's what other people think of you or like how people would sum you up rather than how you would want it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very difficult question and, and you've done some amazing things, but you, do you think you always feel like that Scottish lad on from the farm? You know, is that, you know, is that the story that we tell ourselves? Do you think that that's the best thing is never to lose who we truly are? Oh, for sure. You're kidding yourself if you lose that and you shouldn't try to. I mean, we're all allowed to move move away from home and do different things, but you know, you never lose where you, lose where you've come from. That sense of home is always there, and, and um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of zero to hero stories, and there's a lot of um, you know rags to riches stories. Um, I'd encourage people to read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell because it redefines why people end up doing you know, quote unquote, extraordinary things. And it's, nobody's an island, you know, no, nobody, nobody does things themselves. You know, you don't, you don't achieve anything in life without the right environment, support, mentors, opportunities, you know, so, so nothing is an accident. So the classic Western, by that Western, I mean, sort of like, you know, us Brits and Americans are great at sort of, you know, the self-made stories. And there's a bit more truth to it than that, isn't there? Uh, so, at the heart of your question, will I always be that homeschooled lad, you know, who grew up, you know, in rural parts here and then went off to, yes, of course. But I was also given, you know, amazing support from my mum, access and confidence from an early age to go on adventures and the certain things which were massively formative in, in, in who I am. And I think the more we think about those things, the more we can sort of help and shape, you know, the next generation as well. And, you know, that's at the heart of your question. That's kind of the most important thing as well, isn't it? You know, if I could bottle some of the moments I've had on expeditions and share them with my kids, you know, I'd, I'd be very happy. Because when I look back and I think, like, this, the, the way we were brought up, like, um, by my mother, it's a kind of, you can achieve what you want, you can decide what you want to go and how you, if you want to do X, go and do X, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody. Mm. Like, you know, she gave us the skill sets to go and do it and decide what we wanted from life. And I think that's the problem is we sometimes lose what made us special, that uniqueness. And that's a loss to the world if you do that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know we're way over our time. And, and I think and I think, the, the, oh, the, I think the comparative success is a dangerous one because, you know, there's X billion people in the world. Where are we? Seven, eight billion people. You know, you're not going to be the absolute at, at anything and you don't need to try to be, you know happiness and contentment and fulfillment you know is, is a very personal thing it, it shouldn't be a comparative thing and you know social media and media at large is important but as long as you can take it with a massive pinch of salt and and realize the things that sort of you know equate to to, to happiness and fulfillment will come you know much much closer to home than those sort of distance reference points so 
Um, so, so, so yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a ton, there's a ton in that as well. I should also mention because he has inspired my, my recent sort of project with my daughter. It was Ricky Gates was the guy that did the Every Street Project. If people wanted to go back and, and look that one up, and to give a, a another plug to, um, you were talking before about why you got into podcasting and, you know, your inspiration and wanting to, you know, uncover some of these stories and. Uh, I've got a friend up here in Edinburgh who who does a, a great job with a, a podcast called Get After It with Alan Nash. Uh, and, you know, very similar passion to yourself um, in terms of just trying to understand and unpack life stories. And, um, you know, if, you know, I think you're doing a fantastic job, you know, here. And if people want to to listen to sort of other materials, um, you know, that that's definitely one I would promote because those things you listen to, and podcasting is a great way of doing it always give you ideas and quiet confidence to take on your own ideas because i think that's a, a great kind of show to listen to is one that you can sit you know put the headphones on chill away from it in that quiet moment from work or business you know as you're traveling back and forth and it just inspires you you know it's like that person speaking solely well reds but you know speaking directly to you and inspiring you and you don't have to worry about somebody laughing at you in in school or being judged you know and it's you can then pick a challenge that you want to do in your own spare time and then build it and build it from there and like you're saying go from one expedition to the next expedition and look where it took you you know it took you around the world and the amazing stuff that you've done and now you're passing those skills and that kind of viewpoint on to your kids who are then going to pass it on to the future generations and I think that's what makes the world such a brilliant place like my mum taught us to go out and try to view life and push yourself and you know get the most you can from it but also to kind of build the relationships and get connections with people and all that kind of stuff and it's it's amazing when you see somebody like that but then also what you build and give like one of your key components is to build that community and do it and i think you're doing a fabulous job from it yeah the the community side's massively important and you know uh, you know modern society has done its best to 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 sort of break those links the intergenerational links and the close community links and i think as you grow older that's the thing you grow closer to again and um yeah that's a great place to finish because ultimately you know you could you could do a podcast with me and it's all about going out there solo and smashing it and going around the world and you know ultimately trying to figure out what you're capable of and it's a very sort of that sounds like a very alpha ego story whereas you know really you know for for me it's always been about the storytelling it's always been about the people around me it's always been about I love nothing more than when people come back and tell me what they've done off the back of you know reading a book or being a part of something that I've done, you know, that's such a positive feedback loop, you know, fire in the belly. So um, I think that's where podcasting is so powerful because, you know, we lose that in edited television. We lose that in radio, which again is so, you know, closely edited and scripted. So, um, and time constrained. So these long form conversations are kind of like the old chats in the pub that so many of us just don't have anymore. And um, they're, they're, they're really formative. And um, yeah, I hope people have enjoyed uh, this ramble. We've been we've been at it for a while, so uh, you know, I hope people have uh, got something out of it. I mean, it's it's definitely what you're saying is true. You have to learn from the stories. You know, it's like what your grandpa told you, what your dad tells you, all this kind of things. But for people listening, I mean, what do you want them to take from this? What would you like the sort of the go home message to be? 
Um, you know, to, to back yourself, to, you know, to not not in a happy, clappy, positivity way. We all have good days and bad days, but just back yourself. Just have that quiet confidence. Don't wait for life to give you opportunities. You know, that that, that for me is is far more important than being, you know, being book smart or, you know, there's there's always going to be reasons not to do things. If you've got an idea, you know, I'm all for being a dreamer, but, you know, the power of actually turning some of those into, into actions, doing them, making mistakes, having fun, you know, is, is just the spice of life. So, um, yeah, I'm not one for, I'm not one for, you know, big positive mental attitude chats because I just don't think that's the way the world works you know some days you wake up a bed and you just can't be bothered but 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 for me it's it's just about have that fire in the belly have that quiet confidence you know don't mind a bit of suffering get out there and do fun stuff well I would love to do another one at some point to you know go on about the planning the training all that kind of stuff but for those who want to find out more you know get, check out the books and watch the documentaries find out the charity stuff you're doing just now because you're raising such an amazing amount of money for some amazing charities how can we keep track of you how can we connect on social media your website that sort of thing uh, it's pretty easy to find me if you if you google mark beaumont uh, you'll find all of the above. So Mark Beaumont Online is the is the website, Mr. Mark Beaumont across uh, social media platforms. And um, yeah, I mean, if you go on any channels like YouTube or Global Cycling Network, you'll, you'll find a lot of films and content out there as well. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.